It's Revelation 2, verses 18 to 29. And to the angel of the church in Theatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Theatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule, rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, so, Theatira. This is, of all the seven churches that are given a letter in Revelation, this is the one that we know the least about from archaeological data. And the reason is very simple. Nobody, very few people in history care about Theatira. See, a lot of people write about Ephesus and the grandeur of Pergamum and so on. But very few people outside of the Bible talk about Theatira. So as a result, there's no money for digging. And as a result, it's a very small, we can put a picture up, it's, it's really, at last time I heard, there's only a 60 by 40 yard plot that has been excavated of the city. Um, and the city, what do we know about the city? Well, here's what we know. It was not large. It was not celebrated. It was not wealthy. There was no wonders of the world in it. Um, we know they worship Apollo, the sun god, as their primary patron god. Um, we know that it was a strategic place for the Roman Empire. Because if you wanted to invade Rome, you'd have to come through Theatira. The problem was, it had no natural defenses. It was kind of flat, sitting there. So it was a sitting duck, even though there were a bunch of Roman soldiers there. The one thing that we do know for certain that has been excavated is, it was kind of like, and this is no way disparaging, the Hamilton of Turkey. And what I mean by that... That's not disparaging. I don't want to make it. It's a blue-collar town. That's what I'm saying. It's a blue-collar town. Because we know from inscriptions that it had... I love Hamilton. It's great. Go Ticats. Um, but it had, the, the Theatira had a lot of guilds. They had guilds for everything under the sun, which suggests to us that it was a manufacturing town. It was, it was the, the manufacturing center of Rome, and from there, everything was pushed out, but as a, as a city itself, it just was unremarkable. And so the question needs to be asked, why does Jesus write to this town? Because the other ones, we could see more clearly why. This one, we can't lean on historical data as much because we just don't know enough about it. But I don't think we need to necessarily. Because I think when we look at it carefully, we see, and it's Palm Sunday, the way Jesus comes to the city in this letter is important. 
In fact, the way he comes and what he says he's going to do is far more important than what they are doing. And not that it's unimportant, but it's more important, I think, for this week that we look at Jesus who comes because he comes to them on Palm Sunday on a donkey in humility. Here he comes as a jealous lover. He comes as one, as that uncomfortable Jesus that we don't like to talk about. You know, uh, seeker-sensitive churches, don't, they just pass over this. Because you don't want to present God as being jealous. Because jealousy is bad, isn't it? And yet, this is who Christ is here. He comes as a jealous God. And we're going we're to walk through what that means. And as we do that, put very simply, here's what we're going to learn. We're going to learn what jealousy is. We're going to see what instigates God's jealousy. What causes it. What causes it to flare up, especially here in Theotira. And the goal of his jealousy. What is the point? Why, what, what, what does it come to? Okay. So what is it? What instigates it? And what's its goal? So let's begin with what is jealousy. So first, I have to at least try to prove the fact that he's jealous in this passage to you, because you may not see it up front. I've told you before that each of these seven letters, he begins by looking back to that description of himself in chapter one, that weird description, that weird psychedelic dream John is having. And here he opens by saying that he is, he comes, he is, he, he is the one who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So if you remember from a few weeks back, the eyes of fire suggests that everything God looks at, because remember fire in the Old Testament burns, so it destroys or it purifies. That's all it does. So when Christ shows up with eyes on fire, it's the idea is he sees it all. In fact, verse 23, he makes it very clear. He says he's, he, he's the one who searches the heart and the mind. And in fact, the, the Greek words aren't heart and mind. Well, it is hearts, cardia, which means heart, cardio. But it's the word nephros, which means kidneys. And the idea in the ancient world was the seat of your emotions and everything was inside, in the guts. But the image here is of Jesus as a surgeon. He's scanning. His eyes of fire are checking everything, scrutinizing everything making sure nothing escapes judgment or purification. Everything will be destroyed or fixed, one way or the other. And remember, this is important for John who's hearing this in all the churches. They need to know this because while they're suffering persecution, they need to know there's justice down the road, that there will be a reason for their suffering, and that one is in control. So he's the one who suffers, and he comes, and he's going to check the innards of their motives and their actions. And why is he searching like that? Why does he search everything? Well, the reason is because he demands perfection. When Christ quotes Leviticus 19.2 and says, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, that's not just uh, hyperbole. The demand of you and I is perfection. Perfection. And it's not happening, which is why we're fortunate we have Christ. But he demands it nonetheless, and he peers into the church, and he sees imperfection. And so he wants to deal with it. He wants to raise it out and carve it out if he can and make something beautiful in its place. And so it's, he's not this indifferent God. You know, it's very popular in the modern world to call God a watchmaker God. You know, some skeptics who refer to God as a watchmaker. And the idea is that God is this, this being who creates the world like a watch and he winds it up. And then he stops and he lets it go and it unwinds on its own and he just stays aloof from the world. And that... And that, they say, explains why there's evil and suffering, because God is not paying attention. He wound it like a children's toy, and now it's just running around. And when it runs out of batteries, then everything will be over. But that's not who we see in the book of Revelation, and specifically here. It is a God who is intensely 
intensely involved in our world, cares desperately about your and my works of justice in our hearts. And the challenge of course, and in fact, not just that, in the Old Testament, God is repeatedly referred to as being jealous. In fact, the first time it's mentioned is during the Ten Commandments. He says, if you commit adultery with other gods, you will arouse my jealousy. Repeatedly called jealous. And we have a problem then, right? Because if we're not careful, we have to wonder, we ask, well, what kind of a God gets jealous? After all, isn't jealousy a sin for us? And if jealousy is a sin for you and I, why is it not a sin for God? Is that just Christian double standards? Biblical double standards? If you're a skeptic and you think that, can I call you lazy just for a minute? I mean that with all due respect, because I was that guy. But that's the easy way out. But it, refu- it, it fails to acknowledge the, the, what's actually in Scripture. If you want an answer to these questions, seek the answer, don't be content with what you think, is a contradiction. Because it's easy to think it's a contradiction. But let's look very quickly here. Jealousy in the Bible. The first time the word shows up anywhere in Scripture is Genesis 30, verse 1, and it's about Rachel. In fact, the first number of times, it's only about humans. So Rachel first shows up in Genesis 30, and she um, is upset because her sister, Leah, is able to have babies and Rachel isn't. So she is jealous of Leah. The next time it shows up, seven chapters later, is Joseph and, and his brothers. And the brothers are jealous of Joseph's attention from their father, Jacob. So they commit, you know, they throw, Jacob, they throw Joseph into a pit, and he's sold off to slavery. And Let's think again. Another example of human sin is Saul. We just went through the books of Samuel. Well, Saul is jealous in chapter 18 of 1 Samuel that David is getting all the praise from the women. Remember, the ladies are singing songs, and Saul is jealous. He's angry. And so those are all sinful examples of jealousy. They are. They're sin. And even in the New Testament, now we can put up 1 Corinthians 3, because Paul points out to the church and says, point blank, For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Jealousy is a sin. Very simple. Can't deny it. However, there's another use of the word jealousy. And it's in the same mouth of Paul to the same church in Corinth. Because in the second letter, he says something interesting. He says this, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So, interesting about here. So Paul says, jealousy in the church, bad. Paul's jealousy for them, good. Is it a problem? Is it a contradiction? Well, no. And let's explain why. So what's the difference between Saul's pride against David, or Saul's jealousy, versus Paul's jealousy here for the church? Let's quickly Cover that, and you're going to see God's jealousy in the, in the midst of it. Saul. So why is Saul's jealousy bad? First, why does Saul get jealous? He feels robbed. This is the, the root. Pride is the root of just about everything. Paul, Saul feels that the, the, the worship given and the, pra- the praise given to David belong to him. It's mine, and he is robbing me of my praise. And because of that, Saul shows that his pride-driven jealousy is evil because then what does he do? He then throws a spear at David and continues to hunt him. And so bruised pride is the seat of jealousy in humanity far more often than we care to admit. Rachel, why did Rachel, 
want to... See, Rachel doesn't realize she can't have a child with Jacob. She first, what she does is she says, have a child with my servant. And the reason is the stigma of infertility in the ancient world was such that she couldn't bear it. And so her pride, her ego, her identity was so beaten by, by being infertile that she has resorts to deception. I'll do what I can for my ego. I'm jealous for my identity and my reputation in the community. So her jealousy is rib- driven by herself, as much as we can understand that pain. Um, Joseph's brothers, same thing. Jacob proved himself occasionally to not make the best decisions. And in this case, was he being a little too, you know, too grand to, to Joseph, giving, treating him better? Up for debate. But what we can say is the brothers felt wounded. We should be treated like Joseph. And as a result, the pride-driven jealousy leads to deceit, anger, frustration, everything, wrath. Um, Saul, the exact same thing. And so we begin to see that jealousy in you and I, if we're not very careful, is almost always pride-driven. Almost always. Not always. I can't say always because there is a moment where what Paul says here, because there's a good jealousy. Paul literally says that he has a godly jealousy here. And is it possible to have it? Well, I think so, but why? Paul, when he speaks, he says, what is, why is he jealous? He says, I have betrothed you to one. So meaning, this is very clever, this is brilliant. Think about Paul. He's not saying, I wed you to Christ, to the church. He's saying, I betrothed you because the wedding is coming when Christ returns. Paul is clever enough, even in prison, whenever he's writing these things, to be able to say, I just betrothed you. I engaged you to Christ. I did what I could to bring you together. And now I'm, I'm fearing that something is coming into the church that is threatening to pull you away and break your, your engagement with Christ. So what is Paul jealous of? For himself? You see, because if he's me, if he's a pastor, which he is, he is prone to jealousy like the rest of us. What happens if down the road, John, Pastor John, who I, who I, came, after, I came afterwards, what if he said, look at the mess Carl's making of Redeemer. It's my reputation he's harming. I built that church and look what he's done to it. Listen, I can appreciate, well, I don't think he's saying that. But, <laughs> but, he, but, I, but that's, the, that's our, Paul could have said something like that. But he doesn't. He says, my concern is for you. That you are healthiest when you're wed to Christ. And I'm concerned that you are going to suffer by leaving. And he's concerned with the, the church and with God's glory being tarnished. Not with his own. So it's the exact opposite of the jealousy we find in Rachel, Leah, or not Leah, in uh, Joseph's brothers and Saul and just about everybody else. And Paul understood that, and this is where we get God. God knows that you and I are at our best, our healthiest, are at most at peace in a monogamous, monogamous relationship with him. One God. And this is why all through the Old Testament, when it talks about God's jealousy, you're going to notice it's couched in the language of adultery. It says, don't cheat on me, or I'll be jealous. And is isn't because God is jealous for himself. Listen, God's glory is not diminished or increased by your worship. You don't add to God's worship, God's glory by worshiping him, and you don't diminish it when you withhold your worship. Right? So as a result, because he neither needs, or, or he doesn't need your worship, he can be trusted. Because he's not going to come jealously saying, that's mine, give it to me, give it to me. See, this is what the world says. This is the jealous God you have. It's not what scripture says time and again. It tells us that he knows that we are taken from our happiest, our, our most flourishing state 
when we are separated from God. And as a result, he gets angry. And you've felt this before. If you have had children who have been, you've felt have been led astray by a boyfriend, girlfriend, friends, ideas that you know are leading to their misery, you begin to feel godly jealousy because you want them to be happy. And then your love leads to jealousy. Or if you've seen somebody go down the road of addiction, have you not wept for them? Haven't you felt jealousy? Can't believe they would take him, that it would take him. Or if mental illness, all sorts of things. Have you not? We've felt those things. And God looks at us. And when he sees in the church something pulling the church in Theatira away from him, he gets angry, as you and I would. Not for his glory only, but for your, your well-being as well. So, that making sense? Good? So, when he, so when he shows up as Theotir, he comes to protect it. And here we have J.I. Packer, great theologian, just passed away relatively recently. He says that the jealousy of God is praiseworthy zeal on his part to preserve something precious. And this is what jealousy at its best is. At its worst, it's destructive and selfish. We see that all through Scripture. We see it in our lives. At its best, it's, prote- it's protective. It's God coming to maintain the monogamy between you and I and the church and him. So, he is not this, he's not selfish. Yes, I put that in my notes. He's, he's, as I said earlier, it's not like God comes and says, I've got this limited amount of glory. And when you worship, if you become a Muslim, or you become an adulterer, you become an atheist, whatever, whatever you do with your life, it's not like God says, oh, you've taken some of it from me. And there's less of it for himself, so he's guarding it. That's foolish talk. That's not, it's unbiblical talk. God instead says, I don't need it at all from you which is why I can be trusted, because I will save you, not expecting that you, I need your worship, you know, the same way Amazon needs our payments to keep in business. And if you don't worship, you're the one who suffers, not him. And so he can be trusted. So this is the jealousy of God. But then what is it about what's happening in the church here in Theatira, specifically that angers him and that incites his jealousy? Well, the answer is simple. This woman this woman, this prophetess named Jezebel. Now, two things are worth noting here. One, she is self-proclaimed, right? So she calls herself a prophetess. So this is a woman who has shown up and has started calling herself something, claiming to know something about God that they need. Now, I don't think her name is literally Jezebel, okay? Calling somebody Jezebel in the ancient world would be like calling somebody Judas or Adolf today. Probably not Jezebel. But what I think is happening is Jesus is doing what he did in last week's letter to Pergamum when he talked about Balaam. And he says, what's going on? It's best, the simplest way for me to show you what's happening in the church is to show you a character you know from the Old Testament so you can see the sort of problem that's going on in Pergamum. It was the Balaamites, these people who were preaching like Baal. Here, this probably still was a woman, but somebody in the church is causing up mischief and trouble by doing the things that Jezebel did. And it sounds very similar to, um, to last week. She's causing them to eat food, sacrifice to idols, and to have the same sexual mores as the culture, all those things. And here's a little bit that you need to know about Jezebel. If you want to read the full story, it's 1 Kings verse, chapter 16 to 22. Jezebel was a princess from Tyre, which is due north, not due north, but north on the coast of Israel. and Not Israel of Palestine, of the area. It wasn't Israel at the time. And 
she was a princess there. And Ahab is the king of Israel, the northern part of Israel. Remember, you have Judah and Israel. And they are in the midst of a resurgence of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire is menacing and threatening, not just threatening, it eventually does invade the West. But for your, your direction, this way. And as a result, all those little nations in that area, Tyre, Sidon, Moab, Aram, which is Syria, they all begin to get together to form a coalition against the Assyrians. And what Ahab does is he says, I'm going to marry a woman from Tyre so that our kingdoms are united in a front. And eventually at the Battle of Karkar, 853 BC, they do fight and lose uh, against the Assyrians. But they form this coalition. So Jezebel, coming from the outside into Israel, is a worshiper of Baal. She's not a, she's not a Jew. And she brings this worship in. And rather, remember last week, the, the deceit was saying subtly, right? You can be a, a Jew or a Christian and still have sex with whoever you want, still do what you like with your body. That's not what Jezebel does. What Jezebel does instead is she creates something called syncretism. This is, you know, the word sync, putting things together. She says, in a nutshell, hey, you can worship both these gods, Baal and Yahweh, because neither of them are jealous. They're good. And you know what? It's, it smacks of 21st century thinking. Because today, isn't it popular to kind of have a religion a la carte? To say, I love the Jesus of the New Testament. Just the red letters, that's all. I like that part of the Bible. But I also like crystals by my bed. And I also like yoga and meditation. So what you do, it's very sophisticated today, right? You now become a person who doesn't think anything is wrong. They're all pointing to the same God. And I'm going to pick the parts I like best and customize it like I would customize my Spotify experience or my Amazon experience. And I customize my faith. And people like Oprah will make us think that that's a good thing. But it's actually, it shows that you care nothing about truth or logic, but only about your taste, your preference. Because take a Muslim, take a Christian, take a Buddhist in the room and ask them if they, all their religions point to the same God. Go ahead, ask them. They're going to say no. Because only outsiders think stupidly like that. Insiders would say, of course they're not the same God. But outside, you see, here's the, here's the appeal of the Jezebel idea. Outside can come and say, listen, we stand outside of it. We're not as narrow as you fundamentalists. We can stand outside. We know the deeper things. We know what you don't know, which is they all point to the same God. And it sounds so good. It sounds so winsome. sounds so logical. Everything is perfect except for the fact that it's wrong. Everything else is good. And Christ shows up, and it's not by accident that he says what he says, which is, he thanks, he, 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 what does he say? He commends them and says, for those of you who have not accepted the deep, the, what, what people are calling the deep things of Satan. By saying that, Jesus shows a remarkable understanding of contemporary philosophical debates of the time. Because it was the assumption that you could look deeper, I know what you think Christians in your churches on Sunday, but I know deeper. I don't have to be at church on a Sunday. I don't have to read the Bible. I just have to be nice. It doesn't matter, these other things. I know the deeper things. And Christ shows up and says, I know the deeper things you're talking about. They're of Satan, not of me. That is harsh in our modern language, right? The word Satan, we'll get to Satan in the next few weeks when we talk more about that concept, which is very challenging to us. But he pushes and says, I know what you think. You think it's sophisticated, but it's not. It's actually just lies. And he is jealous of it because adultery is always, always hateful to God because adultery is taking what doesn't belong to you. 
And these lies threaten to take you away from the one you're betrothed to. And God hates it. He can't stand it. So he comes with eyes ablaze and says, I'm watching it. I see it all. I will deal with it all. Now, that sounds very harsh. But this is actually a good thing. Because look, if you notice, he says, I've waited for her to repent, but she won't. It's not that this person just didn't have a chance, this Jezebel person. It's she refuses to repent. And you and I ought to be thankful. Every non-believer, every human should be thankful that we have a God who's jealous. Because it means that evil won't last forever. If he wasn't jealous, he would just say, fine, let it go. It's okay. But because he's jealous, he says, I can't let it go on forever. At some point, the check will come due and you'll have to pay for the meal. And I am going to be that person to come and make it happen. And so he comes and he's jealous for you because something is taking you away. If you're a Christian, there's always something trying to pull you away. If you're not a Christian, you've already been pulled away. And this is him calling you back to him. Now, if that's what is, makes him jealous, we know his jealousy, we know what makes him jealous. Now, this is the goal of jealousy, and here's where things get beautiful, even more beautiful, I think. He says, to those who conquer, and what he means by conquer, he says, those of us in the church who adopt his view of jealousy and realize that anything that tries to pull us individually or the church as a whole away from him is to be resisted and driven out. Um, if we could adopt the same view of jealousy, then it means we'll conquer. We'll resist the Jezebels in the, in the church and in the culture and so on, and we'll conquer. And if we do, what do we get? We get two things, he says. We get authority, right? We get this, um, did I it up there? The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and then I'll get back to the breaking earthen pots in a second. And the morning star. So you get authority to rule and the morning star. Now let me turn these on their head and talk about the last one first. The morning star. In chapter 22 of Revelation, Jesus will refer to himself as the morning star. So what he is saying is, this is incredible. In a nutshell, what he is saying here is those who actually survive their lives as Christians, who can make it, they are going to get everything they lost in the garden. Everything. This is a restoration of the garden of Eden. Because in the garden, remember, they walked with God. There was a personal, physical intimacy with God. He was there with them. He says, I will give them the morning star himself. So there's a restoration of that. And then there's this thing about authority to rule. Remember, in the garden, God creates creation. And some scholars will say he's creating a temple, a cosmic temple for himself to dwell in with his people forever at peace and harmony and for the benefit of us. He makes this cosmic temple. And then he says... I have made it this far so that you can flourish in this world. And flourishing means not just physically, but also spiritually. You only flourish when you can be with God. And the world at its creation was a place that could happen. And then he makes us, his selems, his image. And he says, now you are my co-regents. Now go out into the world and carry on what I've just done. He had created a world that allowed for humans to flourish and to be with God. And we are then sent out to do the same. To go out into the world, populate it, and then to carve out a culture, to dig our fingers in the earth and build the buildings, the institutions, the art that will glorify God and allow us to worship him. We're given that authority. We lost it in the fall. So that we still have, now we, as Christians, we're given the authority again. But now have you noticed, you can't build things that glorify God because there's weeds everywhere. There's stuff resisting your efforts all the time. And he says, if you endure, you'll get this authority back. But not just the authority. He quotes Psalm 2, verses 8 and 9. 
This is what it says. Ask of me, and I'll give the nations your, her- uh, the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So, okay, think of this. Let's, let's go slowly. What is a morning star? Let's start here. The morning star pops up in the sky between 2 and 3 a.m., the darkest time of night, and it shows up as a faint glimmer. But the moment the star shows up in the sky, it means and it signals the death knell of night because behind the star is dragging behind it the light of the dawn, right? So the moment you see it, you know, as dark as it is, it's going to get lighter. When you then and I are given the morning star, what we're being told is this. We become people who drag the light into the darkness. Because we see, we live as if the kingdom of Christ has come because we believe it has come. You have the morning star in part. So we become a people who drag the things that we're going to have in the next world into this one. And so what we do is we want to build better hospitals, better schools, better families, better communities, better websites, better everything. That's what we want to do. The problem is things resist us. (laughs) It's not easy. The world doesn't want it to happen. So you have to continually break things. In fact, the world is kind of like Jezebel. It won't repent. The world, uh, the casino culture, pornography industry, these things won't just close up doors. They have to be closed. And so one day they will be closed in full. That's what he's saying. One day I will come and I'll close them. However, in the meantime, we're the ones who take that authority. And our job is to then go into the world, identify the brokenness, smash it where we can, tear it down, and then rebuild it. And this brings up this idea of Japanese art. Let me explain. There's this wonderful Japanese art. I know it sounds weird, but trust me. There's this Japanese art called kintsugi. And kintsugi, you can scroll the pictures. Kintsugi is this art of taking broken pottery and then putting it back together with gold. And the idea behind it is to say this. Something that has been broken can be made not just beautiful again, but more beautiful because it's been broken. And as a result, look at this one right here. As a result, what is it that catches your eye in that, pot, that bowl? The break. So that the very scars of the bowl become the feature that we marvel at. The beauty of that bowl is because it's been broken and fixed with gold. So, if we take this idea now into human lives, you see what our job and what Christ's job was. Let's start with Christ and we'll work to us. Christ comes as, as man. Beautiful enough. But when he is broken on the cross and then put back together on Easter, he becomes more beautiful to us because he's wounded for us. You see, when God said, people ask me, why would God create the world knowing it was going to sin? This is exactly why. This is why. Because he knows he's beautiful and his son is beautiful. But when the world sees him broken and put back together, wounded, remember to Thomas, touch my wounds, they will marvel and find him more beautiful because he was wounded for their sake. And then he looks at us, and what does he do with you and I? Who hasn't been broken, if you're a Christian, and then rebuilt with gold? And which one, think about somebody who has recovered from addictions and has broken that, that, has been broken in their lives, they've been put back together. Yes, they bear the scars, but the beauty of those scars being healed now allows them to minister to people who are suffering now. And have you ever noticed, up here, what, what testimonies do you like to hear best? The one who says, I've been a Christian since I was a baby. And end of testimony. Or do you like the ones who say, I was broken. I was lost and then I was found. I was a drug addict. I was so on. 
That's partly because we like our ears tickled, but also because Christ is now the model that in brokenness we find beauty when it's restored by God. And we love to hear about these broken pots being put together because we know we're broken pots that need to be put together. And when we see that Christ was broken and put back together for our sake, and that he broke us and put us back together, we then become the people who go out into the world and into Theatira and say, what is broken and how do I put it back together? How do I make Tim, Tim Hortons, if I work there, better? You don't have to be a scholar and a, a government official and a doctor. Whatever you do, you do with your life, how do you bring kintsugi, <laughs> this, this beauty, back? That's our job. We're called, we're given this rod to break down the things that are broken, but then to make them beautiful again. And we only can do that because Easter, which we're going to talk about next week. I feel like I'm jumping the gun, but because of Easter, because he was broken and rebuilt. You should be thankful. If you're a Christian, rejoice. You've been rebuilt and you have this great calling, this great promise. If you're not a Christian, you have time to repent. If you don't, that's your business. There's no doubt about it. But I wish you would reconsider. Because imagine what Christ could do with you. Imagine how he could take your brokenness and make it all better. And then make, push you out into the world to be an agent of healing in the world. This is the God we serve, this God of beauty, this God of care. Let's worship him. Let's pray.